following is a presentation of Artisan Church in Rochester, New York. Let's dive right in. We're going to do the best we can with this. Um, We're starting this uh, preposterously named teaching series today called How to Read the Bible Like a Christian. The, The little slice of church culture that I grew up in was... Uh, endlessly preoccupied with doing everything like a Christian would do it. And more importantly, not doing things that a Christian wouldn't do. And at a certain point, I came to realize that it's uh, actually Christ that we're supposed to imitate, not other Christians. (laughs) And that imitating other Christians often leads us astray um, from the task of imitating Christ. Um, so in that sense, this, the title is a little preposterous, and it has a, sort of an inside joke for me. I just did that for my own enjoyment. <laughs> but let me explain why I chose the title this way for you. <laughs> um, and the reason is that those of us who call ourselves Christians, which I recognize is not everybody in the room, um, but we're, we're, if we do call ourselves Christians, we're followers of Jesus, who we regard to be the Son of God, and the Savior of the world. And I have been hammering home week after week after week the centrality of Christ. Have I not? Those of you who have been here the past couple of months um, have heard this, or maybe you listen on the podcast. Even going so far as to say that we ought to regard Christ as higher than the Bible, which is one of those statements which should be entirely uncontroversial to say, But even just saying the words out loud right now, it feels like uh, there's a lightning bolt coming after me. Because I was raised to believe you don't put anything above the Bible. It never occurred to me that you might put Jesus above the Bible or what that might mean. But that's what I say we ought to do. That's what I've been saying we ought to do. But of course, the truth is, we know Christ first and foremost, how? Through the Bible, right? The words of Scripture are where we see Jesus, primarily. So then, if we are to be faithful Christians, followers of the Prince of Peace, who reveals to us perfectly the heart of the Father, we do need to read our Bibles. It's not, not, we're not going to do the thing where we say, Jesus is higher than the Bible, so let's just talk about Jesus all the time and never read Scripture. We need to know our Bibles. But... There are, uh, there are at least two big widespread problems within the Christian world that I see when it comes to knowing and reading and understanding the Bible. The first one is that we don't know it very well. Even professional religious people, I would include pastors in that group, even professional theologians don't know Scripture as well as we ought to know it. And sometimes what we see, is that these professionals know doctrine better than they know Scripture. That is to say, they know all the rules and regulations, they know all the fine-pointed definitions, they know all the interpretive movements that supposedly derive from Scripture, and in many cases actually do. They know all of that stuff better than they know the, the root, the source itself. That's the first widespread problem that I see. The second widespread problem that I see is that sometimes we make an idol out of the Bible. We read it from this kind of holy distance that prevents us from seeing it for the deep 
beautiful, messy, inspired and inspiring tree of life that it is. Now when you combine these two problems, scriptural illiteracy with scriptural idolatry, you have a major problem. Those two things combine and it's exponential. It's not linear how bad it gets. And so one of the things at the center of my heart as a pastor is to break us out of both of those patterns. I want us to break the glass case that we keep Scripture in so it's all sanitary and sanitized. And I want to pull it out of there and open it up and look at it for what it is and come to love it and allow it to shape our lives, allow God to speak to us and shape our faith through it. So what this series will be, How to Read the Bible Like a Christian, it's not so much a a how-to manual on a practical level. It's a little bit more of a how-to on a theoretical level, and we're going to bring in some practical stuff toward the end of summer and, and in the fall. So what we'll do over the next three weeks is the following. Today, we're going to do a sermon called How to Read the Bible Like Jesus. We're going to start with how Jesus used Scripture in his life and ministry. Next week, we will proceed uh, to looking at how the Apostle Paul used Scripture, not only in his ministry in um, spreading Christianity throughout the, the known world, but even more so in his writings to the churches in the early church, which have come to be, some of them, part of our Holy Scripture. How did Paul and Jesus use what we call the Old Testament, the Jewish Bible, which for them was just the Bible? And in the third week of the series, we have a really wonderful treat, how to read the Bible like a 21st century rabbi. Um, And in that week, we're going to show a video of an interview that I did with Rabbi Kelly Levy from... Uh, Temple Brith Kodesh in Brighton. If you were here uh, a couple of autumns ago when we did our interfaith panel on Abraham, um, Rabbi Levy was sitting over on this side, and she uh, is the assistant rabbi at Temple Brith Kodesh, and she's become a friend of mine in the intervening months and years, and uh, I've come to respect her a great deal, and she has a lot of interesting stuff to share with us about how modern-day Jews read the Scriptures. Now, why is that important for us? Well, because we have this spiritual shared heritage, and because even though Christianity was born out of Judaism, we have subsequently developed some pretty not-Jewish ways of reading Scripture. All right, so we're not, we're, I'm not gonna, this interview is not to propose that we um, start reading the Bible in a 100% Jewish way. I want to retain our, our Christian core, obviously. But I think when you hear from um, the rabbis, you learn some stuff about what Scripture can be. Because their, their picture of it is... Um, in many ways, much more beautiful and less clinical than ours. So I'm really looking forward to having you see that interview in a couple of weeks. So that's something to look forward to. But today, we're going to focus on how Jesus used Scripture in his ministry, in his teachings, in his interactions with the religious authorities, and most importantly, in his own life, how did he uh, embody the Holy Scriptures? Because as his disciples, as his students, as his followers... We ought to be imitators of how he used the Bible. Now, of course, 
um, trying to get a comprehensive understanding of how Jesus used Scripture in a 30-minute sermon, one-third of which has already expired, uh, <laughs> would be foolish. We couldn't possibly do it. People write whole books about this, and Jesus used Scripture so extensively that it would, be, uh, it's not, that would not be a wise thing to do. It would take us way past time, and it would be even more boring than it's already going to be. Um, no, it won't be boring, I promise. Fireworks. going to be really fun. <clears throat> so what I want to do instead is offer a few overarching themes, maybe broad categories, if you will, about how Jesus approached Scripture. Maybe give an example two or two in each case. And, and my hope is that that will create a bit of a framework for how we can then go and use Scripture ourselves. We want to do it in the way of Jesus, right? So the first thing to say about Jesus almost goes without saying, but not quite, so I will say it which is that Jesus knew Scripture. Now, I think, I'm not sure where this comes from, but I know in my own mind and so possibly, very possibly in your minds, there's this assumption that Jesus knew Scripture because of his divine nature, right? We Christians believe that Jesus was fully God and fully human at the same time, one of the great mysteries of the faith, right? And we think, well, God inspired Holy Scripture, and Jesus was God, so Jesus was born in a manger in Bethlehem with the complete canon memorized, <laughs> right? I don't think that's true at all. As a matter of fact, I think, I think, a matter of fact, I think Jesus learned Scripture entirely in his humanity, just the way we're going to have to do. Now, he knew Scripture to a remarkable extent, except that it's Maybe not that remarkable when you think about his context. Jesus was a faithful Jew. He was a teacher of faithful Jews. And in that time, in that era, there was no Amazon Prime, pay six ninety five and get a Bible shipped to your door. <laughs> right? Obviously, the words of Scripture, as far as words on a page, were vanishingly rare because scrolls were exceedingly expensive. So very, very, very unlikely that there was a Bible in Jesus' house growing up. Jesus learned Scripture the way every Jewish boy learned Scripture at that time, which is by following his family, following the words of Deuteronomy 6, which says, keep these words in your heart. Recite them to your children. Bind them as a sign on your hand. Fix them as an emblem on your forehead and write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. That kind of um, permeation of Scripture throughout the entire life of a faithful religious person at the time is how Jesus learned Scripture. And I would suggest to you and to me that we are going to have to do some work to get even close to the level of knowledge of Scripture that Jesus had. Because this is the kind of thing that takes lots and lots and lots and lots and lots of time to accomplish. And what's worse is that it takes lots and lots and lots of time to accomplish it, and you don't see any measurable progress along the way. If you read a chapter of Scripture every day for a week you will not feel any more scripturally literate on Saturday than you felt on Sunday. 
you do it for a month, you, you probably still won't notice it. Measured in days and weeks and months, this doesn't work. But if you start measuring this in years and decades, you know what you get? You get those old saints of the church. Anybody grow up in church that had some old saints in it? I grew up in a church with some old saints. And they seemed like they knew every word of the Bible. And I had this, I guess I just always assumed that it was like some, they were like some genetic anomaly. (laughs) They have the spiritual giant gene. And I definitely don't. You know what I think they had? I think they had persistence and dedication. I also don't have that, so <laughs> I might be in trouble either way. But this is the kind of thing that's very hard to see measured. You, you, you don't see the results until years of doing this, right? And you, it's very hard to get to the point where you're willing to put in the work day in and day out without seeing the results you want to see unless you have a genuine love for it. And so part of what I want to uh, help you get as a pastor is a genuine love for and appreciation of Holy Scripture. Um, very excited to share with you some of what we developed at our leadership retreat last weekend. The staff and leadership re- uh, team were away last weekend planning the whole coming ministry year. And I am psyched about some of the stuff that we're going to do uh, to begin to deepen our faith. Specifically, one of the things we'll do to deepen our faith is to to go deeper in our understanding of Scripture and to explore it and study it in a new way that I think you're going to find very engaging and meaningful. I can't wait to tell you about some of that stuff. Um, And by the way, let me pause for just a second to say a huge word of thanks to the members of the leadership team who gave up their whole weekend to be away with me uh, last weekend, to all of those who were um, Tim LaHaye left behind (laughs) for the weekend um, by spouses being away, and uh, also to Anna Voss, who ran the ship and steered the boat and all the other nautical metaphors that you could possibly want last week. Anna did a great job uh, leading the service in the absence of um, the staff and the leadership team. So thank you to all of those who sacrificed last week, and I know it was a huge deal um, and uh, Jesse came on the retreat, even though she's not even supposed to be working right now. She's on maternity leave. She still came on the retreat, and Susie was there with her, and we, we didn't even know it. She was so awesome and quiet. It was so great. Um, noisy babies are awesome, too, just so you know. <laughs> In a different way. They have special talents. So Jesus knew the Bible. Almost goes without saying, but I had to say it. How did he use the Bible? That's where it really starts to get into the nitty-gritty, Right? I would say the first thing that I notice is that Jesus knew the Bible as a story. He knew the Bible as a story of God's people. We've talked about this at Artisan over the years, that the Bible is not a book, it's a library. It contains lots of books. And these books tell the story in various different voices and ways of God's people coming to know God, coming to understand how they ought to interact with their neighbors and with the world, coming to love God, and coming to understand how they can share God's love with their neighbors and with the world. Now, Jesus understood the story. And you can see this in some of his teaching. Let me give you one example. There's a bunch of examples. Some of them are actually a little bit weird. Uh, But one example that I think is really telling and should be quick to grasp is when he's asked a question about divorce. Jesus is asked whether it's okay to divorce. Now, in a patriarchal society, of course, divorce was a one-way street. The husband would divorce the wife. 
understanding of divorce that we have nowadays where things just didn't work out or something like that. Probably not an option uh, in most cases for women to initiate a marital separation in the ancient world. So that's important to remember that the, the patriarchy is the backdrop of Scripture um, even though it's not the message of Scripture. Okay. Jesus is asked about divorce and what does he say? He says, well, what did Moses teach you? Right? Go back in your story. What do you find? What does Torah say? And they say, well, Moses permitted us to give our wives certificates of divorce. Which, by the way, it bears um, mentioning how much of an allowance and a protection that was for the women in the society. Right? Sometimes we look at ancient scripture texts and go, whoa, that is not cool. That is sort of sexist. Right? And compared to 21st century Western culture, yes, it is. Compared to ancient Near Eastern culture, very often it's not. Actually, very often it moves in the dr- a direction that we would like to see. Right? And I think this is one of those examples. Be that as it may. He says, go back to Moses. And they say, well, Moses said we could do it. Case closed. And Jesus said, no, go back further. And he takes them all the way back to one of the creation narratives. He says, well, there's Adam and Eve, and, and God made this part of the design for the world. And in God's perfect design, there was no need for divorce. And so he, he holds them to this other standard, which is back further in their story. So it's not just going back and finding, looking it up chapter and verse and say, well, my interpretation is this. You can do this or you can't do that. He says, no, let's look at the story. What, is the, what does the story tell us about what, the way God made the world? We ought to do our best to live into that story. Seems to be what Jesus is saying. So, uh, Jesus not only knew Scripture back and forth, but knew Scripture as a story. It's an important thing to remember. Here's another way that Jesus used Scripture. Jesus used Scripture as a defense against enemies who attacked him. Very often when the Pharisees or the Sadducees or other groups of uh, Jewish teachers or authorities who didn't believe that he was the Messiah came to attack him or criticize him or question his ministry, he would respond not with some uh, airtight logical defense, but with Scripture. He would quote Scripture as a defense for who he was. Right? Even in times when it, it's kind of a... There's, there's the, occasion, the example I want to give you is a little bit weird. They come to him in John 10 and say, you can't say that you're God. And he says, well, what about Psalm 82? I don't know if he gave the number, but he says, <laughs> is it not written in your law? Quote, I said, you are all gods. End quote. Now that's kind of a weird, like we could spend some time on Psalm 82 apparently. <laughs> but that's not the point. The point is he quotes the Psalms and shuts them up. Now, I want to be clear about this. This is distinct from using Scripture in a debate. It's using Scripture as a weapon, perhaps, but it's a defensive weapon. It's to deflect an attack, not to make an attack. Right? Sort of like Mr. Miyagi with karate. What's the first rule of karate? You always have to say it like that when you're talking about Mr. Miyagi. (laughs) Only use karate for self-defense. What's the second rule of karate? 
First, learn rule number one. <laughs> right? Um, it, may be, it may be that the, uh, the epoch of quoting Karate Kid has passed. <laughs> um, <laughs> maybe it's just my particular age. Maybe you don't even know who Mr. Miyagi is, but that would be, you'd be impoverished if that were the case, let me just tell you. <laughs> Whew. By the way, do you know that the actor who played Daniel-san in Karate Kid is now older than Mr. Miyagi was when, he, when the movie came out? Anyway, uh, yet another reason that perhaps I shouldn't use it as a real hip contemporary movie quote. But anyway, th- th- don't lose the point here. Scripture is a defensive weapon, perhaps, but it is not an offensive weapon. There's been way, 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 way too much of Christians using the Bible as a, a weapon to attack people. And let me say, as a pastor on behalf of Christendom, such that I can do this, if you have been attacked with the words of Scripture, I'm sorry that that happened to you. That is not how our holy book ought to be used. And I hereby prohibit all of you from doing that. <laughs> Jesus used Scripture as a defense, not as an attack. And by the way, how awesome is it that Jesus quotes the Psalms? He goes to the, the songbook, the poetry to defend himself against these, these religious attacks. You would think he would go find some legal thing, right? Well, look in the book of the law. The scroll here says this, and uh, my interpretation... No, he goes to a poem. I dare you sometime, when a really uh, conservative religious person comes up and tries to attack your beliefs, to defend yourself with a poem. <laughs> Good luck. But it worked for Jesus. I love that. He quoted the Psalms on the cross. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? First words of Psalm 22. Expressing the deepest lament of the human heart, which is that sometimes when things are awful, we we have nothing to say to God except why aren't you here? What happened? And at the same time, implying the rest of Psalm 22 which you ought to read because it's a messianic psalm. And as it turns out, God had not forsaken the Messiah. Spoiler alert, Easter, (laughs) right? Jesus uses this, this poetry in such a beautiful way. I love it. So he uses it as a defense not only against human attack, but against spiritual attack. The beginning of his ministry, he goes out into the wilderness and fasts for 40 days. And at the end of this time, Satan comes and tempts him and offers him power, strength, if only he'll bow down. And how does Jesus respond? He quotes Scripture. He quotes from Deuteronomy. Three different times. You know, by the way, the, the tempter then switches tact and begins to use Scripture against Jesus. That's the, that's the using the Bible as a weapon thing. So Jesus used Scripture as a defense, not only against human attack, but against spiritual demonic attack. And you have to know it to use it that way, right? This is, this is the benefit of knowing it, right? Jesus was not pulling up version on his phone in the wilderness when the devil tempted him because he'd been in the wilderness for 40 days and his battery was dead. 
<laughs> there is benefit to memorize. I know you can Google anything you want. I do it myself. Wow, which verse is it that he says, you search the scriptures because you think, I'm just like typing to Google, you search the scriptures, and oh, there it is. I guess that's from John 5. It's easy to do that. Would it not be better to be able to pull it up out of your mind and your heart? Anyway, preaching at myself here. Here's the key point. I want to begin to land this here. Jesus saw himself as the fulfillment of Scripture. After the tempting in the wilderness, he comes back into the town. He goes into the synagogue, stands up and reads the scroll that the attendant hands him. It's the prophet Isaiah, and he reads these words. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to let the oppressed go free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And then what does he do? He rolls up the scroll and gives it back to the attendant. And he sits down because uh, rabbis would sit down to teach. And what does he say? Today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Whoa. Not a popular thing to say. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus' best known bank of teaching, one of the things he says is, don't think that I've come to abolish the law and the writings. I've come not to abolish it, but to fulfill it. And what I think we sometimes interpret that to mean is um, Jesus came to take the status quo as the law had been interpreted and just apply it more widely and more better. More better. The word. It's two words, actually. They're both real words. (laughs) No. What Jesus came to do was to complete it, to perfect it. That's the word for fulfill. Complete and perfect. So that when he, in his ministry, starts doing things like eh, maybe kind of sort of breaking the laws about Sabbath observance, and he's attacked for that, He says, oh, wait a second. Do you think that God made human beings so that there would be somebody to observe the Sabbath? No. God made the Sabbath so that human beings would have some time to rest and that they would be more healthy people. Those aren't his exact words, but I think that's a fair paraphrase. That's what I mean by, and I think that's what he meant by fulfilling the law. After the miracle of the feeding of 5,000, in the way it's told in the Gospel of John, some people are coming to ask him questions. And one of the questions, bizarrely, that they ask is, what sign can you show us? And he's like, "Mm, the food? Were you there? (laughs) And they say, well, in in, in the wilderness, our ancestors were wandering and God provided the manna, right? You know what manna means? It's a Hebrew word that's, that means, what is that? <laughs> because they woke up this morning and there was stuff all over the ground and they said, what is that? And it came to be known as bread from heaven. And how does Jesus respond to that? He says, I am the bread of life. Once again, whoa, not a popular thing to say. And then in maybe the clearest statement of Jesus fulfilling Scripture. He says to them, 
This is another occasion. You search the Scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. And it is they that testify on my behalf. And we read that and we go, Oh, yeah! Is there a burn unit in Jerusalem? Jesus got the Pharisees good. And then what do we do with our Holy Scriptures? We search them and idolize them because we think that in them we find eternal life. When in fact, they are only there to testify on His behalf. You know, Jesus even appropriated the central story of the Jewish faith throughout His ministry in various ways. The central story of the Jewish faith is the Exodus. How does that story get started with a bang? What Jewish holiday was being celebrated the weekend that Jesus was crucified? Passover. The remembrance of the angel of death coming through and taking the life of every firstborn son in Egypt so that the Pharaoh would finally let God's people go, that they, so that these captives would finally be liberated. And what happens on this particular Passover is that the firstborn son of God gives up his life so that the captives might be liberated. Jesus appropriates this Passover narrative in so many ways. I, I, I would love sometimes, I say this like every week, I say this like two or three times, I know. I, I get it, it's like a thing now. But I would love to preach a sermon someday on that. I can't right now, I don't have time. But the idea of, of Jesus' ministry as a new Passover is, uh, as a new exodus, as a matter of fact, is uh, really deep. I want to give you one last thing here. And um, the truth is that if, if I were more disciplined in my uh, preaching, I would omit this because it doesn't actually fit perfectly well, but I cannot resist sharing it with you. And it sort of fits. The book of Revelation, the last book of the Bible, talking about the end of everything, wild stuff in this book. Bloody battles. There's an image of Jesus soaked in blood carrying a sword. And very often, uh, one response to hippy-dippy pastors like me preaching nonviolence in the way of Jesus is, well, pastor hippy-dippy, don't forget... Jesus, the blood-soaked warrior with the sword in the book of Revelation. That's how things are going to go down in the end. But you must remember that Jesus arrives at the battle already soaked in blood. This is not the blood of His enemies, but the blood of His own sacrifice. And the sword that He carries is not a sword in His hand with which He could do battle, with which he could cut someone's head or ear or arm off. It's the sword coming out of his mouth, which is uh, something of a ridiculous image, but it is all metaphor and allegory, is it not? Say yes. No real real dragons, right? Okay. 
what that picture tells me is that not only is Jesus um, waging war with his own sacrifice, but that the weapon of his choice is the word that comes out of his mouth. It's the word of God which, as the book of Hebrews tells us, is sharper than any two-edged sword, and so on and so forth. And so my prayer for us is not only that we would be able to use the Bible, read the Bible, see the Bible, love the Bible, like Jesus did, by knowing it, by knowing it as a story, by using it in defense, but that we would see Jesus himself as the fulfillment of all of those things. My prayer for us is that we would walk in his footsteps, even when that means laying down our arms in the conventional way that we think of it and taking up arms in his way which sometimes means sacrificing our own wants and needs and desires. My prayer for us is that the Word of God, by which I mean not just the Bible, but Jesus Himself, would be what comes out of our mouths, would be the only weapon that we we wield in the war that does exist around us. My prayer for us is that we could embody all of this the way Jesus did. Amen. I want to invite you now to come and receive Holy Communion. Uh, At Artisan, we serve communion um, with intinction, which means you can come and pick up a piece of the bread and dip it in one of the cups. We have wine and juice. We also have gluten-free bread in the middle, if that's what you need. And we have an open table, which means that you don't have to be a member of our church to come and take communion with us. It means you only need to confess faith in Jesus and be seeking to follow Him in this place on this day. We would be delighted to share in this holy meal together with you. Whether it's your first time or your millionth time, whether you're a long-time member of Artisan or a first-time visitor, whether your faith is as old as the trees outside or brand new. This table is open for you. So come and receive the grace that comes with the body and blood of our Savior. Take it into your own body. May it be for you food for your souls, a remembrance of His sacrifice, and an act of unity with each other. If you'd like to receive prayer, there'll be a member of the prayer team under the cross here. We'd be happy to pray with you this morning. Come and respond to the Spirit however you will. Amen. For more information, visit us at artisanchurch.com.